Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Black Power 96.3 FM, WBPU in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on podbean.com at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com, rather. Um, you can follow us in our podcast on that site. And Reparations in Action is the weekly program of white people who stand in solidarity with African liberation and reparations to African people. My name is Jamie Simpson. I want to begin, as always, by saluting the leadership of the Uhuru Movement, the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and African, International, African Socialist International, Chairman Omalia Shatella. We'd like to salute the African People's Solidarity Committee the cadre group of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party for reparations, Black Power 96.3 for giving us this hour every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time to bring this message of reparations, the African People's Education and Defense Fund, which is the nonprofit whose mission is to address the grave disparities in economic development, uh, health care, human rights, and health conditions faced by the African community. And we would also like to just state that we are white people addressing other white people who listen to Black Power 96 to let you know that there is a role for you in the African revolution, in the African liberation movement, if you can unite with reparations to African people. Today on Reparations in Action, the main topics that we want to discuss have to do with the colonial virus known as COVID-19. First of all, we will discuss the rising death rate uh, faced in particular by the African community who have COVID-19 or coronavirus. And next, we will also discuss the 43,000 millionaires who are getting the $1.7 million tax break from the CARES Act, uh, which is the coronavirus stimulus package. And lastly, we will have a special feature interview with USF uh, student Carla Correa, she is actually a student government, government senator, a supporter of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, who had witnessed a police harassment of a young African man last November and was charged for taking that stance. We're going to interview her as well as her friends Jenna Sierra and Naya Payne. COVID-19 is disproportionately killing African and indigenous people around the country. In New York City, African people are twice as likely to die from the virus than white people, according to an ABC News report on April 17th. In New York's largest hospital system, 88% of coronavirus patients on ventilators didn't make it, according to an article in the Washington Post on April 23rd. A special report from the Reuters News Service, April 23rd, states that doctors are starting to rethink, quote, when and how to use medical ventilators to treat severe sufferers of the disease, and in some cases, whether to use them at all. An April 17th Vox News report states that in New York City, the American epicenter of the outbreak, Black New Yorkers are dying at twice the rate of their white peers. An article published on the Burning Spear newspaper online quoted a report published by the New York Post, who found that during the height of the pandemic in New York, New York state officials issued protocols on April 17th that directed emergency service workers not to attempt to revive anyone without a pulse when they arrived on a scene during the coronavirus pandemic. This order was not rescinded, rescinded until April 21st. 
We turn now to Penny Hess, the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, for commentary on that. Uhuru, Uhuru Jamie, I really want to salute you and, and thank you for your introduction. And of course, I want to salute Chair Jesse from the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and Chairman O'Malley Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party and you know, just the director Akile from Agiprop and, and the editor of the Burning Sphere newspaper and this incredible radio station, Black Power 96.3 FM. It's an honor to be on this. And yeah, I, I, uh, I think that the, the statistics that you're laying out are, um, you know, make it, make it very clear why the African People's Socialist Party have um, has termed this the colonial virus, that it's becoming more and more evident every day if we follow the news reports that African people are being targeted very, very severely in, in this epidemic, in this pandemic that is, um, you know, playing out inside the borders of the United States right now. And you cited the fact that uh, Africans in the in the New York um, scene at the time of the height of the COVID nineteen experience there were twice as um, you know common that Africans would die from COVID nineteen than than white people. It was also because that took place in Queens. It was also the fact that people who were Spanish speaking were twice or even 2.2 times um, more likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. So that's an addition to the African statistic. And I think that, you know, if you also look at that, that many of the people who are listed under Spanish speaking are also um, African. Some of them are African in any case and come from Dominican Republic, which is very much in that neighborhood. So, you know, just it's really clear that it's really more like Africans and Spanish speaking together are about four times greater, more likely to die than white people were in New York. And some of the things that, that we're finding um, is that one, that there is a uh, an element in the virus that is HIV, is connected to HIV, and is destroying the immune system. And that was according to an article that was in the South China Morning News. Um, we, can, we can cite these in the part of, you know, in the area under, in, on YouTube, um, you know, where, where you can look for information. And, but people who, um, you know, we're seeing various articles in, in many different newspapers and uh, websites saying that people after even testing negative, after having tested positive or experienced the disease are, um, are experiencing incredible deep damage to their heart, their lungs, their liver, and also chemical kidney damage to the extent that some states had as much problem with shortage of dialysis machines 
in, in this um, pandemic as ventilators. So, you know, it's, it's a very serious thing. People are still sick afterwards. There's no doctors yet who can say on. Um, and as we heard from Trump's woman, whatever, the, the doctor that's always on bricks or whatever her name Dr. is. Dr. Burks, um, I believe. That Burks, I'm sorry, Burks. And um, she said that, that it is highly predictable that there will be a second wave in the fall, but many people have said that. Mm -hmm. And of course, with this dangerous easing of, of restrictions that's going on right now, it's far more likely that, you know, just certain areas are going to be um, just popping up with, with many, many um, of these, these uh, viruses, you know, cases mm -hmm. that, that are going to be coming up in many parts of the country. So um, just some other things, as you said, there was a study that was released in the Washington Post um, that was saying that 88% of people on ventilators, that was a New York hospital study only, and it was a small amount, but they were saying that 88% of those put on ventilators died. And you know, it's interesting because a doctor in New York did make a video um, that he said, we're, these ventilators are not good. We're using way too strong of a setting on them. It, it has to be reevaluated. But in any case, uh, I know CNN came out with a retraction on that, um, on that study, so I don't know. But it was still saying that up to 25% of those who got on ventilators in New York who were put on ventilators died. That's still a very, very high percentage. Um, it it I also, is. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm surprised. It, it, I don't recall the the actual number in that particular hospital that you're talking about being recalled. That that still stands as as, as far as I'm aware. Do, do you do you I think don't that? Know. I thought that they were saying. I thought it. Well, I, I don't know. You know, we would have to see that. I thought what the CNN article was saying is that the previous article that study had been expanded because when mm -hmm. that study came out they said this is a very small sampling i think it was 366 people so mm -hmm. something like that so i don't know but let me just say a couple more things first one is Jeez. that other other kinds of very uh, frightening things are being revealed by this, you know, along with the kidney damage, the liver damage, the, you know, the heart damage that, um, and that is an article that was in, I believe it's in the New York Times. And it said that they're finding that young people, this is not the older demographic, but young people, and by that they're, they're saying 50s, 40s, and 30s, who a lot of them don't even know they have it, they have no symptoms, but they're coming into the emergency room with strokes. And they're very unusual strokes because they're not just in one place. They're not just a blood clot in one place, but what's happening is their, their blood is clotting all over their bodies. It's very, very bizarre and scary kind of thing. And I, I have read of people who've had to have amputations, limb amputations from this. And 
you know, we're just finding out about this now, but it's very, very serious. In fact, it's saying that a lot of people who die from the pneumonia are dying from blood clots in their lungs. So this is a whole question. And I think it's interesting because to, to me, and this is anecdotal, but the majority of the people that I've seen that are young that are dying from this are African. I've seen mm -hmm. very little of white that being put out about white people, so I don't know. I would also say that there was an article in the New York Times from a doctor, an emergency room doctor in New York, who said that also people are coming in to the emergency room or were at that time, not just gasping for breath, but what they learned is that by the time you're gasping for breath, you're very, very near death. And that these people had symptoms, including, you know, the, they had the pneumonia actually for maybe five days or six days. And what's happening is their bodies with this kind of pneumonia, not the usual kind of bacterial pneumonia, but that their body compensates by, um, by making them breathe more quickly and they don't really notice it. They don't really notice it. So by the time that they're, um, the, by the time they come into the emergency room, their oxygen levels and their blood have dropped to 50% and it, it needs to be up in the 90s to even just live. So by the time they come in, they're already near death. And, you know, I just, I just think that the, all of these, these, uh, these different kinds of factors and symptoms and um, examples of conditions that, you know, are manifested by, um, by this disease are, are very serious. Um, and of course, that article called on people to use what's called a pulse oximeter, which is a simple finger device that um, that you can wear that measures your blood oxygen. Now, <laughs> there's none in the in in the drugstores. They're all sold out. Um, and if you order one on Amazon, it could take weeks to get. So you know, in theory. But also, they're like thirty to fifty dollars. So they're not available to many people in the African community or the people that that need it the most. Um, there's also the symptom that is pretty, pretty becoming more universal, it sounds like, of no taste or smell, that mm -hmm. you can go through it. Even people with very mild symptoms are reporting that they had no taste or smell, and that that's not something that immediately goes away when you, when you get, uh, you know, when you test uh, negative again. Um, so I don't know how long that takes. That takes a while to go away. In any case, the point is that the majority of these cases, and even more and more of the nursing home cases, are African people, and it is clearly targeting that um, that population. This is mm -hmm. um, very clearly a colonial virus. This is attacking the African community. There was an article in Washington Post yesterday that was talking about Prince George's County which is the wealthiest African, majority African county in the United States. 
a lot of very wealthy people live there, but it's 70% um, of the households are African. And the title is COVID-19 is ravaging one of the country's wealthiest black counties. So it's, it's rushing through Prince George's County. Um, and again, you know, people that they're showing who have died from it, one man, 46 years old, um, good shape, you know, just good condition physically and et cetera. So this is the colonial virus. The conditions that the African community are facing are nothing like what is being experienced by the white population. And I do think that for us, the major, the major concern would be a nursing home. And, um, but that generally speaking, white people are out, you know, just either staying home and working or going out and about, walking around, doing their thing. Um, and that for the African community, as is everything under the colonial domination of this country, of US imperialism, is a matter of life and death. And um, it's, it's continuing to go on. You know, it's, it's continuing to play out and more and more is coming out. And, and uh, Chairman Penny, it, it seems that this awareness is, is becoming more and more rooted in, in the masses from uh, what we're hearing in, in the bourgeois media, from, from what we're hearing, um, you know, just from, from people uh, talking in, in, in public, if, if anybody has brief public experiences anymore. So the awareness that this is disproportionately affecting one, the African community, and two, you know, indigenous, so-called Latino people, uh, do, you, do you think that these conditions where we're seeing these massive deaths, I think today the death count is uh, over 55,000 people in the U.S. alone. Do you think that these kinds of conditions would be permitted if they were affecting white people? Absolutely not. And, you know, I saw an article where African people in Georgia were saying, accusing their governor, who's going to saying he's going to reopen the state or actually perhaps already started today, um, accusing, accusing the government of, quote, trying to kill the Africans by doing that. And I, I also know what you're saying, that the indigenous um, concentration camps called reservations are also, um, we're not even getting the reports on what is happening, but it's sweeping through there. It's sweeping through African, um, Africans in prison. And there, I saw an estimate, and I have to, can't remember which one it was in, but it was saying that the, S, oh, the, the uh, ACLU estimates 100,000 people in prison will die from this. Um, wow. at the rate that this is going. And they're, they're not telling us the numbers. We're hearing about whole prisons, you know, um, with people having it, but we don't know what the numbers are. Um, and I also read that San Diego, is, you know, which is predominantly white, but there are Mexicans there, but that the death rate in Tijuana, which is right across the border from San Diego, is greater than the death rate in San Diego, even though in Tijuana they have fewer number of cases. So again, you know, the, the conditions 
of impoverished colonized Mexican people, you know, playing out in the same way. So this is very clearly a colonial virus. Um, it's something that when the dust settles more, I would, I, I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be uprisings, there's going to be, you know, just anger coming out of the African community. And we also see how much um, so many new people from the African to hear the analysis of the African People's Socialist Party, the chairman had up to 150, you know, quite a few people on his study yesterday, yesterday morning. Um, that was, it was amazing. And there are more and more people joining, joining the movement and coming forward. And, you know, for us from the white community, this is a key question, a key example of why reparations are owed to African people, and they're gonna they gotta be paid. Once again, once again, African people are on the front lines of what's happening. And then when you, you know, when you talk about the ventilators, when you talk about this no resuscitate order that was in New York at the height of the Queens, the whole epidemic in Queens, um, you're talking about African people. And this didn't happen in the white in the white community. You don't read of, of people dying on the ventilators from the white community. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying that they were experimenting on African people. They were not um, taking the same care, obviously, that they would for um, a white community and a white population. And that, um, you know, it's very clear that this is it is the conditions of colonialism. It's, it's, as Chairman O'Malley Chatella says, this is not a medical problem. This is not a medical problem. It is a political problem that African people do not have power over their own lives. And we're going to see, you know, more and more like the whole question of the vaccines and how they um, were proposing that they would be tested on the continent of Africa. You know, just everything about it is foul and and for profit it's for profit it's for the interest of big pharmaceuticals and the ruling class and wall street banks and african people are owed reparations reparations must be turned over that is the only progressive stand that white people can take in this country and in this world that the leadership of the African working class organized for their liberation is our leadership if we are anti-imperialists, if we hate what we are seeing and the way that this whole colonial virus is playing out here and around the world, then we need to stand under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party in the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and fight for reparations to African people. Uhuru. Chairwoman Penny Hess, Uhuru, and thank you so much for joining us today to sum this up on reparations in action. We hope you can come back to sum up further soon. For our next segment on reparations in action today, we're going to be speaking with the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville, about big business profits from the coronavirus pandemic. As revealed in a recent analysis published by the Joint Committee for Taxation, 
43,000 millionaires and billionaires in the United States will receive an average of $1.7 million in tax breaks from a provision snuck into the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act stimulus bill passed by Senate and Congress, also called the CARES Act, and signed into law by U.S. President Donald Trump in late March 2020. These millionaires and billionaires are looking at a combined 82 billion windfall. That's more than the total allocated funding for all hospitals in the U.S., and more than the total provided to all state and local governments. This is just one of the many ways that during the imperialist COVID-19 crisis, the capitalist ruling elite have tightened their grip on the stolen resources of African and colonized people that make up the foundation of the parasitic capitalist economy. We turn now to Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and coordinator of a national campaign called Make Wall Street Pay Reparations. Uhuru Jesse Neville. Uhuru Jamie Simpson, how are you? I'm fantastic. It's an honor to have you back on the show today. Can you tell us how this $1.7 million stimulus for millionaires works? Absolutely. And first, I want to thank you, Jamie, and Black Power 96.3 FM, as well as your excellent interview that preceded this one, uh, Chairwoman Penny Hess of the African People's Solidarity Committee. I want to echo uh, her salutes of the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, Chairman Amalia Shatella and the Uhura Movement. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the campaign to make Wall Street pay reparations, which is setting its sights right now on the millionaires and billionaires in this country who are profiting big time um, off of the COVID-19 crisis. And many people in this country are still waiting around for their $1,200 stimulus check to arrive in the mail. Millions of African people are never going to see that $1,200 check. And even a lot of white people, I have certainly haven't gotten one. Um, but while many people are, are wondering when that measly little $1,200 check is going to arrive, the, uh, the white billionaires and millionaires in this country are not waiting for their stimulus to arrive. Uh, as you mentioned, Jamie, uh, hidden in the CARES Act, which was the uh, stimulus bill passed by uh, the U.S. government last month, was this provision that gave 43,000 millionaires and billionaires a stimulus check, if you will, averaging about $1.7 million each. And the way it works is that this bill, this provision, allows for business owners to deduct unlimited losses from their quote-unquote non-business income, such as capital gains like stocks and bonds. Meaning that these business owners, they, they have what's called a pass-through business, where the income that comes into that business passes through that business entity into another channel, such as stocks or bonds that are owned by an individual. So the business is not paying a corporate tax, it's paying an individual tax. Before, I think they could write off up to $250,000 of that um, on their taxes as a deduction. Now they can write unlimited uh, deductions on that income. And as a result of that, they're looking at an $82 billion uh, amount of resources, $82 billion that as a collective, these 43,000 millionaires and billionaires are going to have that they weren't expecting to have a few months ago. Um, over 80% of the business owners who will profit from this provision are millionaires. 
So it doesn't specifically say that this is going to benefit millionaires, but in practice, 80% of the people who are benefiting, benefiting from it are millionaires. The top beneficiaries are hedge fund investors and real estate developers. So this is just the latest example of how this whole so-called CARES Act is going to go down in history as one of the biggest corporate heists that has ever taken place in modern political history. It's, I, I have to say, uh, Jesse, just before we go on, it's just nauseating it to is. hear this. Yeah. And it really, it really informs things like over the weekend uh, in, the, in the bourgeois media cycle, there was a lot of rosy commentary. A lot of optimistic things being said about the economy. Now they they you know made sure to make those measured statements, yep. and they brought on uh, Bill Gates to talk about all the philanthropy he's doing, and people like Thomas Friedman, while uh, criticizing the response to COVID, were holding back these disgusting grins of satisfaction about the economic future. Could right. could you flesh out more of the ways in which the ruling elite? are scheming to make a profit from the colonial virus campaign. I'm sorry, <laughs> the colonial virus pandemic, I Absolutely. should say. Uh, yeah, and they, po possibly even addressing some of those uh, supposed philanthropic ventures. Uh, indeed. Well, I mean, with regards to the Thomas Friedmans of the world and their smugly uh, optimistic uh, forecasts about the economic future, I think um, in some ways we have to take that with a grain of salt because uh, I want to give a shout out to the Burning Spear newspaper, which has been printing some excellent uh, analyses uh, in the last few weeks about the colonial virus pandemic and specifically about the economic crisis. And, you know, when you said earlier that the ruling elites are tightening their grip on the stolen resources of the African and oppressed peoples of the world, the reason why they feel the need to tighten their grip is because it is slipping out of their hands as we speak, is that their control of the world economy is falling apart. And, uh, and, and as Chairman Amali Shatella has always explained, that, that the crisis of parasitic capitalism comes from the fact that capitalism was built as a parasite on the body of humanity, that it's built on the enslavement and oppression and exploitation of African people and their resources. So at the very moment when African people and oppressed peoples do anything to challenge that parasitic relationship, it causes a crisis for the white ruling class. And a, a crisis-ridden, desperate imperialism is one that will do everything it can to consolidate all of the power and wealth that it possibly can into its clutches. So that's what we're seeing right now. And uh, in, indeed, despite the smug look on the faces of Thomas Friedman and his ilk, uh, the future for imperialism is very grim, and the future for African and oppressed peoples around the world is very bright as a result of the People's War, the incredible revolutionary campaign that the African People's Socialist Party is carrying out. And part of that campaign is to demand reparations from these bloodsuckers, these thieves, these parasites that are doing everything they can to extract all the wealth that they possibly can during this COVID-19 crisis. Jamie, on this show, we've talked about how African people, you and your, just the interview that you just had, like, let's do a split screen in your mind. On one side of the split screen, you have African people who are dying at home, dying in the hospitals, dying from COVID-19 at twice the rate in New York as white people are, and that's a bare minimum. On the other side of the split screen, you have just a few 
miles away from the hospitals where Africans are dying, you have the big skyscrapers and towers on Wall Street where the ruling elite are sitting around drooling over their trillions. Let's talk about people like Jeff Bezos, the richest man alive in, this, in the world, who, uh, who you know, is part of a billionaire elite that as a whole has added $308 billion to its wealth in the past four weeks. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, his wealth alone jumped from $105 billion to $130 billion. Let's put that in context, Jamie. That jump in wealth that Bezos has enjoyed as a consequence of a disease that is killing African people is larger than the gross domestic product of Honduras, which is $23.9 billion in 2018. And he's not the only one. There's seven other billionaires that have increased their wealth by over at least a billion dollars during the pandemic, including his wife, Mackenzie, uh, the CEO of Zoom, Eric Yan, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft, John Albert uh, Sobrato, a Silicon Valley real estate developer, Elon Musk, uh, Joshua Harris, Ro Rocco Camiso, and others from the cable and internet uh, industry. And, and then let's talk about the small business loans. So supposedly yeah. the CARES Act was supposed to put $484 billion towards rescuing small businesses in this country. That was an absolute scam. The millionaires and billionaires ended up taking over 600 million in forgivable loans from the aid supposedly meant for small businesses. Over 150 publicly traded companies uh, ended up getting that money. And some of them, like this group, this company called Shake Shack, which is a $2 billion company, they ended up giving back the money from the Small Business Administration because of a wave of bad press uh, that made them look bad when all these small businesses are wondering when they're going to get their money. And meanwhile, this $2 billion company is getting it, but most of them kept it. And we're here in St. Petersburg, Florida, Jamie. I mean, 800,000 people still haven't received their un unemployment benefits. And right. to put that in perspective, that's out of about 900,000 that have applied for it. So mm -hmm. the vast majority of the people who have filed for unemployment still haven't gotten it. Meanwhile, $2 million in bailout cash was fast-tracked to Fisher Island, a posh members-only getaway off the coast of Miami where millionaires lounge on beaches made from imported Bahamian sand. So capitalism has to be wiped off the face of the planet Earth, and these people have to pay. They have to pay yeah. reparations. They have to pay, and you say, well, how much? How much reparations? Well, let's start with $1.7 million each that stimulus check they just got from the CARES Act, what they need to take that and write a check, they need to grab their checkbooks and make a check to the African People's Education and Defense Fund earmarked for the Black Power Blueprint Project in St. Louis, Missouri, the economic program of the African liberation movement. So we're demanding reparations. And it's, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Jamie, and we could go on for hours about all of the ways that the, the parasitic uh, white ruling class and the billionaires in this country have just have done everything they can to suck the blood of African people and continue to enrich themselves at the expense of the peoples of the planet Earth. So we're, we're talking with Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Jesse, this campaign that you're talking about, this is called Make America, I'm sorry, Make Wall Street Pay Reparations. Could you uh, tell us, and I, I know you've spoken to us, but, but could you tell us exactly what is the goal of this campaign? The goal of this campaign is to build a massive popular movement in the white community 
a, that is under the leadership of the African liberation movement and that is targeting Wall Street, that is targeting the money sector of white society with the revolutionary demand for reparations to African people. And we want them to pay. This is not just a, a, a movement for movement's sake. We're not just trying to make a point. We want them to pay. We want them to pay millions and ultimately billions and billions of dollars in reparations by donating, by contributing, by turning it back over to the work of the Black Power Blueprint in St. Louis. We're gonna be doing demonstrations. We're gonna be doing press conferences. We're gonna be doing everything you can imagine. And we want white people to be a part of this. This is like if Occupy Wall Street had actually been about challenging the root upon which Wall Street and parasitic capitalism was built, that's what we're talking about. Going for the jugular, going for the root of this entire social system that was built on the enslavement and oppression of African people. And this is, it's about socialism, reparations, and our unity with the struggle for reparations is how we can genuinely fight for real socialism, which can only come about when the pedestal upon which parasitic capitalism was built is overturned. So that's what this campaign is about. People can join us, email info at uhurusolidarity.org, call us at 727-888-3797, get involved and build the campaign to make Wall Street pay reparations. Fantastic. You've been listening to Reparations in Action here on Black Power 96.3 WBPU in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we've been talking to Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhura Solidarity Movement. Jesse, anything that you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off here? Just thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting Black Power 96.3 FM. Today on Reparations in Action, we speak with Carla Correa, Jenna Sierra, and Naya Payne. They are, all three of them are USF St. Petersburg students. And Carla Correa is a USF St. Petersburg student government senator. She is also an Uhuru Solidarity Movement supporter and was an ardent supporter of the Aretha Akile Canyon 2019 campaign bid for city council in St. Petersburg's District 7. Welcome to Reparations in Action, Carla Correa, Jenna Sierra, and Naya Payne. We're so glad that you could join us today. We wanted to talk to you about your courageous stance, uh, the three of you, for refusing to leave the scene outside Residence Hall while university police were uh, conducting an interrogation or harassment of a young African man on November 7th of last year, 2019. Carla, as we have read in the Crow's Nest, which is the USF uh, St. Petersburg newspaper, when you asked the young African man, Joshua Simmons, if he was okay, he responded, no. In the Crow's Nest, you assert that based on his words, you stayed to observe how the police treated Mr. Simmons. We'd like to salute you for this stance, which wound up getting you arrested and charged with resisting or obstructing an officer without violence. As the Uhur Solidarity Movement, we unite that we should observe the police, especially if we suspect someone is in danger, and especially if that person is an African or other colonized person. Considering the long track record that we see of police murder of African people in St. Petersburg, including Tyron Lewis, Markel McCullough, 
Javon Dawson, and even Marquise Golden earlier this year. It is a reasonable thing to be concerned about the well-being of an African person being approached by the St. Petersburg police. Carla, could you tell us what happened that night? Yes, yeah, so um, it was a friend's birthday party. So we were in the residence hall where this took place at. And we were walking outside and I see this young black male being cornered by two old white police officers. And instantly it's kind of like, okay, I need to stay to like see what happens. Um, but I in particular know that like one of these police officers has said some problematic things in the past and like Naya can go into that. But um, so I, I just immediately just asked if um, the man who was being questioned was okay. And the police immediately got really aggressive with me and asked me why I was there. And well, pretty much they just kept asking me to leave but I was just refusing to leave because, I mean, I feel like it's any person's responsibility to stay, especially if the person who's being questioned says they're not okay. Um, they could be in some type of danger and I don't wanna, I don't wanna leave and further put them in danger with the police. I mean, um, the police do have a long track record of, having a bias against African-Americans and African-American males in particular. So for me, it just felt right to stay. And they, um, they kept telling me to leave. And so, like I said, I wasn't leaving. And then one thing happened after the next and they just took me off for, they said obstruction of justice and some other kind of crazy things happened, which I think Jenna and Naya can add on to. Yeah, there was, uh, note that you made in a crow's nest about the manner in which one of the officers actually had approached you. Um, I believe it was the officer that you identified as having made the, the sexist and racist statements in the past. One of them, the one who I know has been problematic before, he was the main aggressor and he kept telling me I had to leave and then at one point, he just walks up to me and pushes me, which, I mean, I think this just proves that I was never in the way of the investigation, but they had actually turned their attention to me for some reason, which I do not think I was, you know, causing a big deal, but they, they just, they were power crazy. They even, um, like, threatened to arrest Jenna, which she can get more into. While this was all going on, um, they were getting more and more aggressive with Carla, and they were like, we're going to arrest you, and then if, if you don't leave, and then um, obviously they started to arrest her, and I was just telling them to let her go, and that this was illegal, um, and like Carla has rights, basically, and they were basically telling me to, to stop talking, to shut up, or they were going to arrest me too. Um, and then one, um, officer left, o O'Donnell left with Carla to walk to the, um, the station, I guess. And, uh, our friend group stayed with, um, the other officer, the more problematic one. And, uh, he was just basically telling us what they were going to charge her with, which was, uh, 
can't remember what it was called, but it was like not a full charge. It was something that you can get expunged or something like that. And he was just acting like we were just completely crazy. He was like, and he was just like telling us basically she had what was coming to her. Um, then we all start walking to the police station because we're all about to give witness statements about how we saw something illegal, basically. Um, and we saw an officer push for arrest for no reason when she was being nonviolent. Um, so we all go to the station. We all write down witness statements. Um, and of course, uh, we're not allowed to see Carla. And even though she's been arrested and she's entitled to like an advocate of her choosing, apparently we're not, ad we can't be advocates for some reason because it's no big deal and she doesn't need one, even though the person being arrested should be able to decide if they need one, not the officer that's not even in the room with her. And um, so that was a big part of us being in the in the room, uh, in a separate room writing witness statements was basically me and Naya just arguing with the officer for us to be able to, you know, see if Carla's okay, to see what's going on, um, to which we got basically no response. To rewind a little bit, we even had to press uh, Wasserman outside to even be, be able to go down to the station and uh, file witness statements. Mm -hmm. And when we get there, you know, they're really dismissive. We're going back and forth. He tells us that Carla could be there for three to four hours, that we should just leave. They were being very dismissive to us. Even so far as to make it colder in the station, we noticed too at the time, and we were just sitting there waiting, refusing to leave. Um, and, and I can't remember some of the statements that these officers made during this time, but one really jumps out when O'Donnell came out with Carla towards the end to try to belittle us again and explain what was going on. He claimed that he, have, he has a magic wand that he can wave to silence people and make them go away, uh, and that he's painfully aware of the First Amendment existing, basically saying that he decries that. Um, just a lot of misconduct going on during that night. Wow. That is really bold. Just to say, from uh, my experience quite some time ago as a university student, as, as, as a white person, uh, the, the typical understanding is that the, the university police are there to protect you and uh, they're, they're not there to, to, to mess with you in any way. And this, this really belies that. This really um, exposes something, in, in my opinion. Can I ask all of you, uh, Jenna, Naya, Carla, who, whoever would like to respond first, why do you think it was, and you've spoken to this, but if, if you could directly respond to why do you think it was so important to stay there that night, observe the police, at first as they interacted with Joshua Simmons, and then for Jenna and Naya, the fact that you stayed with your friend, that you, you, you refused to leave until you knew exactly what was happening with Carla. Why do you think that was so important? I, I think it's so important because African-American men in particular are targeted by the police every single day, incarcerated at much higher rates. Um, they're just exposed to a lot of vulnerabilities it, even in the prison system, we see with the death penalty, um, just 
a lot of injustices happening within the black community and the police. And I, I, the police kind of asked me like, why are you doing this? Why, why would you not leave when we told you to leave? And I said it, I said, well, police have a bias against black people. And they said, well, that's not true. That's not true at all. You need to look at the FBI statistics. Um, that's just completely inaccurate. We're not racist, yada, yada, yada. And it's not a matter of the individual police officers being racist, although I, I don't doubt that they are, but it's a police as an institution being racist. So I think as, as people, we just need to watch the police and what they're doing because their role is to protect people. But it's like they kill people all the time. And again, mostly black people and people of color. So it's like, I'm not going to leave just because you're telling me to leave. You're just because you as an old white male police officer are telling me that everything's okay here. While like the young black male is saying, no, it's like, I'm going to stay regardless. Thank you, Carla Correa. Um, Jenna Sierra or Naya Payne, would, would you like to comment on why you felt it was so important to stay throughout this event? And then in addition, stay with your friend Carla once she was arrested. Yeah, I can speak to that. You know, being there and watching this whole event unfold, it was just obvious to anybody witnessing it that there was an injustice going on with how they handled Carla being there. She was not in between the officers and the young man. She was standing at a distance and just observing and making sure that nothing went wrong in the situation. So for them to aggressively approach Carla, push her, and then subsequently arrest her, it's just obvious that they were breaching their duty and there was misconduct going on. So we had to obviously protest that. We're just not gonna let that happen. So we stayed there in that station and it was important for us to stand up for Carla who was standing up for that young black man's rights. Yeah, and I think um, I think Carla summarized it pretty well on the reason that um, she stayed for Joshua Sims, um, and but for for Carla in that case, it was just just such an obvious um, display of abuse of power, and we we talk so much about social justice, you know, Black Lives Matter, all these things. So how would it make sense for us to just let someone just be in the hands of the police with like you can just be powerless with the police like if you're interrogated and I mean Carla's a, a smart person so but I mean a lot of these people are very smart and they're interrogated long enough and then suddenly they're getting charged with things that they didn't even realize that they were talking about and it's just it's just not it's not good to not have an advocate especially when um it's like the reason for you being there in of itself is absurd. I, I think in an era when um, we saw, you know, a few years ago, and it's probably been a little bit more now, uh, that Sandra Bland in, in Texas was pulled over for a routine traffic stop and winds up dead in her cell, obviously killed by the police, but they rule it as suicide. Um, that they, they claim that she hung herself with a plastic bag. This, this is uh, Sandra Bland in, in Texas. Um, I believe that was 2015. 
And so when we, we know how serious it is when people are in the hands of the police, it makes the actions that the three of you took, Jenna, Naya, Carla, this, this stance is so important. So again, I just wanna deeply salute you for, for having put your bodies uh, between the police and an oppressed person and then, and then your friend. It's such an important thing to take that stance in this time period. Um, can I ask, uh, first of all, Carla, what is the status of your legal case as it stands now? I was charged with resisting a police officer um, without violence. And it's so like messed up because when I was there, they said that they could just, Officer Wasserman was like, well, let's just charge her with disorderly conduct so that um, she can do this APAD program, which is um, adult pre-arrest deterrent. So like, I wouldn't have even gotten arrested, um, but instead I was kind of telling them that I was unhappy with their actions. This was while, this was the same night. I was telling them I was unhappy with their actions, with um, just how they acted. And they kind of, I think they retaliated against me because of that. And they sent my case to the, um, the state, the state's attorney and so um it was up to the state attorney to charge me and they decided to do it so i'm just waiting um on monday i have an arraignment but i'm i'm pleading not guilty so who knows how long it'll take but this is just such a waste of time especially in a pandemic especially with the facts of the case it's obvious they're just bored over there at the um the courthouse so i'm just kind of waiting it out. As we understand, you were also an enthusiastic supporter of Aretha Akile Canyon's campaign for City Council District 7 here in St. Petersburg. And in your work with the College Democrats, you mobilized support for her campaign. Now, Akile's campaign often criticized the role of the St. Petersburg police in the Black community and called for a total deconstruction of this relationship through a policy called Black Community Control of the Police, in which the Black community would have the power to hire, fire, train, and discipline police who operate in their community. Could you tell us about why you supported Akile's campaign and how it is still relevant today? Yeah, I love Akile. Akile. Um, seeing her at the candidate forum was really just such a breath of fresh air. Seeing a young person being so outspoken about these issues that are put on the back burner a lot, half the time not even talked about. I had never seen someone talk about reparations so um, in depth and so enthusiastically. So I was really um, excited about that. I was excited to see someone bring black issues to the forefront of her platform because i feel like representation is good but if you're if with that representation you don't bring policy to help your community it's like what good is it so i feel like i just love how she talked about issues within the black community such as like poverty and the need for affordable housing because these issues of course they exist in the black community, but they exist everywhere. And I feel like they're just highlighted in the black community because that's our most vulnerable population. And so um, with systemic racism and everything that has happened 
with um, African Americans in this country, like um, the Jim Crow era, the prison industrial complex. It's like these these are grounds for reparations, and I feel like they're necessary. And I think that um, Black voters are in the most disenfranchised group, and so it's really I don't know. It's really telling to me that Akile lost because a lot of these white voters just don't care about these issues that affect, affect black people, which is really disheartening. But I was glad to see someone bring them to the forefront and speak about them so enthusiastically. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that statement, Carla. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on Reparations in Action and speaking out about this very important issue of uh, police brutality against uh, the African community and against oppressed peoples. Is there anything else that you would like to say, Carla, about this case? I feel like this is an example of abuse of police power, which is so prevalent um, in the United States and even here in St. Petersburg, which some people seem to think we're exempt to because we're such a liberal area, but these injustices are happening everywhere and we need to stand up for them everywhere. Carla Correa, Jenna Sierra, and Naya Payne, thank you so much for talking to us today on Reparations in Action. We salute your stance in the world and please continue to be in touch with us and uh, stay safe out there.